Good morning. Welcome to a special edition of Holistic Resistance Radio. This is Aaron Johnson. Um, just wake up this morning. I'm doing this, like this audio diary section that um, it, it's a show, but it's also opportunity for me to just talk to you all, to keep you all abreast of what's happening in real time, very quickly, and to be able to be in a place of rawness, realness, and for you all to be able to reach for me uh, as well. I would love to hear from you all sending me voice messages via Facebook Messenger or here on Anchor um, are all appropriate. <clears throat> uh, it's morning time, so this is like the first uh, the first time I talk in a day. So my voice is a little deep, it's a little dry. Um, drinking some water, getting woke up still. But one of the things that's really critical is that I want to talk directly to you all. I uh, don't want to wait too long for an edit for a podcast. This podcast is Holistic Resistance Raw, and we stay raw and dusty in Holistic Resistance, and um, we'll do a lot more of these episodes, and we'll be a lot quicker about it, because I like to go directly to uh, the people, uh, to you. It means a lot to me. One of the things that has been unpacking, unfolding in my life right now that feels really important is a phrase that I coined maybe a couple years ago, and we're using in uh, coaching and supporting and deep mentorship and realized it had huge implications, much bigger than just my deep mentorship program as I start to talk to more people about it. And it's the idea of being chronically undertouched. Um, there are many ways in which um, African heritage folks are oppressed. There are many ways in which we acknowledge that in holistic resistance, that we are oppressed holistically, that every part of our lives are impacted by white supremacy, and we want to resist accordingly. Now, there's a piece that is in that that I feel is really important, one of the fundamental bricks of how we are hurt as a culture, but specifically African heritage folks are hurt in a very... Um, uh, facetious way, a very effective way um, when it comes to being chronically undertouched. And now, what does that mean? How do you qualify to being chronically undertouched? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to describe it, but the way that I have been discovering it has been uh, pretty extreme. I talked to a lot of young men that have not been held for more than three minutes. Thoughtfully held for more than three minutes in the last year. Um, and these are as important as a lot of times these young men say have been properly or mindfully held, hugged for more than three minutes, cuddled, um, massaged um, for more than three minutes in a mindful way in like 10 years. So when I talk about chronic, it's a spectrum. Some people haven't been held in the last month and that's causing some mental illness, some challenges. But some folks, it's been 10 years and they've not realized it. Some people have been able to to supplement it <clears throat> with uh, 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 their job. They have a job if they're a body worker or something that can touch other human beings and supplement it. But they're giving touch oftentimes. I've seen people with animals, cats, dogs, and, and, and other animals help them contradict or disrupt this pain. But what I've seen is when I work with young men, is how much they struggle. These young men struggle, excuse me, struggle with relationships, struggle with anger, struggle with mental health almost across the board of, of connecting deeply because they are undertouched. And the reason it's important is that when you think about a person, a human being 
that has been starving, trapped out in, uh, in, in the wilderness and they're you know, living off of bugs or whatever or they're in, in a particular you know unrest in a government and they've been starved well we, we have a, a medical protocol to help bring them into health to slowly bring them back into health to bring them back into a place of well-being and when I look at being chronic, chronically undertouched that is a place where I feel like we could do the same thing that we could really take the time to have a protocol. It's a lot more nuanced sometimes because people have a variety of ways they can come back. Um, but I was, was examining my own healing in surviving 10 years, 15 years, I would say almost 20 years of being chronically undertouched. Um, that started shining some light on how we can have better protocols, better systems, uh, much more effective ways to bringing uh, everybody that suffers, but specifically I'm going to talk about black men because when you look at the spectrum of people that are undertouched, black men in the United States specifically are at the top of that list um, of being chronically undertouched. Black women are right there with them, but we find that after that we see uh, individuals have access to touch access to connection because it's, it's something important to acknowledge first of all human touch even um not mindful human touch can be uh useful can be a supplement um it could also cause harm but what i find with young black men is that one of the narratives that black men are constantly trying to navigate and survive is that we are predators first and that we are nothing else beyond our intentions are predatorial first and there's movies to back that up. There's there's media to back that up. There's uh, a, a law and, 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 and you know police force to back that up to try and keep that perpetuation of black men are predators first. And the reason that's very scary is that when you take a young uh, black man and you don't touch him, you don't properly give him the emotional nutrition that he needs to survive, and then you put him in a container where he is trying to then be perceived as a predator first, you can see very quickly how many black men are dying too early or violating people's trust or emotionally not equipped to maintain mental health uh, because they have not been touched in a way that helps them feel grounded, that reminds them that they're good that disrupts their isolation, that disrupts their depression. And that piece right there is where Holistic Resistance wants to reach. We're actually gonna go on tour, and, and our tour in January is the uh, Chronically Undertouched Tour. Um, as much as we won't be touching a ton of people all the time, we're gonna do specific talks in explaining the value, explaining the the intensity, explaining the, the, the criticalness of being chronically undertouched and that we can disrupt this collectively. This is a community activity. This is a, a culture that needs to change that is shocking. I, I can't imagine, you think of the, the, the federal and state prison and private uh, uh, prison system. There's this commonplace where when you are uh, acting up, when you are fighting, causing violence, whatever the, the prison system might call as a, 
uh, needing punishment, one of the first things you happens is you get isolated. And there, there what's very sick about it, you know, is that isolation is such an effective way of destroying the human mind and and abusing the human mind. And it's such a common practice. Some men have been in solitary confinement for years. Now, mind you, they were crying on touch before they even went to prison. Probably one of the reasons why they went to prison in the first place, oftentimes, is because of some, uh, uh, the culture they live in and being cranked and untouched. Um, and so when we look at the dynamic of touch and isolation, those one of the things that, that, that that's not talked about enough, in my opinion, is that they talk about how many African heritage folks are locked up. It's, it's stunning. Uh, the first time I visited a uh, a federal prison, I was very nervous, and I get to the main courtyard. We were actually coming in as a singing group, and I was so nervous going into federal prison for a lot of reasons. Um, when I get inside, I was shocked. It felt so familiar. There's so many cousins or or, or, or people like they're part of my family. They weren't, but they look they could have been. They look familiar. It felt at home and in that very disturbing place of realizing how many African heritage folks that I could identify with were locked up, broke my heart. It really did. We have a lot of federal prisons near us here in the high desert in Southern California. And and in that landscape of recognizing that those men in federal prison, state prison and private prisons are isolated even more and even have more mental illness. And then they're, when they are released, whatever that rare occasion happens, but they are released back into the black community, they carry that deep distress pattern of being chronically undertouched. There's no protocol of you've been in prison for five years, you've been in prison for whatever, you've been in solitary confinement, and they come back into their neighborhoods that are underfunded, under-therapied, under-tracked in that way, and they're, re- they're, they're released without a protocol of helping them emotionally ground back into the federal system. And one of the systems that's important about that is that they talk about housing, they talk about jobs and employment is huge, they don't talk about the key part of touch. And if you've been locked up for 10 years, mindful touch is really hard to get. And for me, that's a part of this conversation that the black community is, is full of black men that are that are functioning as husbands, wives, sons, um, that have not been touched. They don't have access to touch, and that they are manipulating, tracking, reaching, in a lot of ways, screaming for connection and touch. And that piece feels like something I want to shine some light on. There needs to be touch facilities like they are Starbucks on the corner. We need less caffeine and more touch. Um, I know we can't do that tomorrow, but I think that that's something I want to reach for. I want to reach for making touch and protocols for bringing folks out of chronically touched uh, uh, pain stories into access to touch, access to human connection. And and this is what's important too, is that one of the protocols I want to talk about right now, this is going to be a series, but one of the protocols I want to talk about right now is that the chronically undertouched they need a lifetime of touch. This is not like six months and they're back to health. Six months can go a long ways in getting them grounded, but it's really about them being able to develop a culture around them 
of well-connected people that know and value and take the time to create touch space. Um, one of the things in holistic resistance we do here in deep mentorship is that especially when deep tragedy hits, that we try and ground in with human touch. Because one of the protocols of bringing people out of uh, the chronic human touch space is building relationships, asking questions, tracking where they are, letting them know that they are seen, they are respected, and that they, we love them enough to give them the, the boundaries and the tool and the skillfulness to know how to touch, to know what kind of touch to ask for. I mean, for a black man to ask for platonic, platonic touch takes a ton of work. For him to have the skillfulness, the, the, the container to say, hey, I am open to touching your body, to holding your pain, to tracking your story, that your life matters enough is a goal. And a lot of the homophobia, transphobia, um, and deep pain that we're navigating is complex. Part of it <clears throat> is that we're crunk under touch and the, and the queer community has been so good at saying, hey, we can we can reach for each other. We can hold hands. We can we can we can disrupt that part of hurt and it doesn't mean that trans folks and queer folks don't suffer as well from being crunk in touch but they bring in the feminine they bring in the the complexity around gender and what we can and can't ask for and that has been one of the areas I would love to continue to rub against to allow us as social justice folks that are trying to dismantle racism and white supremacy and internalized racism and, and homophobia and transphobia and all these new trying to dismantle I think if we don't have a protocol <clears throat> if we we were back I got cut off a little bit there um, recording on my phone so I have calls coming in in the morning um, but one of the things I want to bring to the show as we wrap this thought up around me and Kronk Untouched is really one of the things that I am moved by and and will always have a part of this work is that being chronically untouched is not a small thing. That it is one of the places where I have a, a quote, I said, hugging, snuggling, and I think I have one other action like uh, holding is a life saving act. And I, I just want to make that clear because sometimes we realize that folks are killing themselves, folks are killing other people, folks are are, are, are are raping folks, folks are abusing folks physically, and one of the things that they're suffering from, or oftentimes they're suffering from, is being chronically undertouched. I have not worked with a young person, with an adult, with someone that's gotten in a fight or has been given to me because they're about to go to juvenile hall, they're about to kick them on the street, that has not been chronically undertouched. This is something that I am moved um from the bottom of my heart to speak to, to reach for, to talk about, to unpack, and all of its complexities. Because to me, when I look at how we want to disrupt disrupt racism, I look at the passion, I look at the funding, one of the most inexpensive things we can do is be skillful at developing a culture of touch, specifically with black men. And and I don't want to belittle black women, I don't want to belittle um, the trans community, but I think that black men have a specific narrative in America that's so deep and it so needs to be disrupted. And as I interviewed people about this and as I unpack more of this, I'm writing some stuff on this 
is that I want to make sure that you all get this quickly, that you get it deeply, and that we are in a place of tremendous amount of power and clarity around how important it is to raise young men that have touch as a normal part of their life, to raise young ladies that know how to track um, men that are crunking on touch, that are praying after they were crossing their boundaries, manipulating them, and to be in a place of growth in that area would be critical. Um, I have so much love for you all. Thank you for listening to the morning, uh, uh, morning Diary with Aaron Johnson, unedited. And I look forward to hearing your responses. And I'm reaching for you. We're going to talk more about this. Peace. All right. Welcome. I want to welcome all the parents, all the individuals that took in the time to take on uh, the six-week intensive. Uh, we're going to be sending out a micro-parent positionality profile. And the reason it's called micro because it's a select handful of questions that I feel could do, take some time to explain. And for those that haven't taken the workshop, may just drop into the podcast for the first time and are interested in um, hearing more about the uh, parenting uh, program around teaching children around social justice work and how to do that as a parent at a variety of stages. And a lot of the first class is about just introducing you to the concept of asking better questions, noticing your own blind spots. And we'll, as we go deeper into these programs, we'll get much more thorough and just understanding where you fit. And a word we'll use is positionality a lot. And this micro-positionality is a great place for us to start. Um, so with that, I'm going to get into it. Um, welcome. And uh, I really want to just start with a couple of key things that oftentimes can be forgotten in this work. And that is that this is our best thinking as of right now. We're going to think of more topics and, and more uh, information as time goes on. Uh, this is 2020. We've done, you know, five years of thinking. And I, I'm sure in 10 years of thinking, we'll look back and go, snap, we've came a long way. So I just want to give space that this is the time we're in. And we're always trying to improve, always trying to deepen. And I felt like from, from 10 years ago, we've come a long ways, ago, long, long ways. So I just want to appreciate the journey that we're on. So the parenting micro positionality questions, you'll receive these questions in a Google Doc or email from the facilitator. But I just want to give it, take a little bit of a moment to explain some of the questions and how we could think about them. And I want to clearly state this is an invitation. This is not a, this is the way it has to be. So um, question number one, we don't have to go in this order, but in the context of this particular um, series, this is how it's set up here. When were you first introduced to racism? This is to you, the parent. So you're going back to your childhood, you're going back to early parts of your life and just recognizing when did you start becoming aware of racism? Maybe it was a couple of years ago, maybe it was when you were very young, but just trying to examine your life and say, huh, when did I get introduced and what was that like? Was it my parent, was it my school, was it media, was it all the above? And, and how could you remember yourself receiving that information about you being different or black people being inferior or whatever the you know people of color around you are. Um, we talk a lot about black folks because I'm African heritage and the folks that we're um, helping notice here in this conversation is race, um, is, is African heritage. So I just want to name that these questions are uh, coming from my lane. But if you have other indigenous and BIPOC folks that are in your community, it's, this definitely applies with them as well. Um, number two, what are ways that you dominate black bodies for your safety and for your family's safety? This question probably requires the most explaining only because 
I could imagine when I said the word dominate, we might get really like um, polarized or fixate on the word dominate, but it's an important word, but I wanna explain it a little bit more here. There are so many ways to dominate black people in America and how we have oftentimes been dominated. And some of it's not even, it's not even recognized as domination. But I, I remember I was teaching a, another workshop, but we were talking to a person and I said, what is, um, what are ways that you uh, want to dominate black bodies for your own safety? And they're like, I'm a small petite person. I don't have a lot of strength to dominate. And they slowed it down and they go, oh, snap. Oh, I see I, I dominate. There was an expectation that they were more intelligent than African heritage folks, no matter who they were. There was this clear belief that they were more intelligent, that they had more power, right? So this is a good example that when we say dominate, we're not just talking about physical strength. We're just not talking about economics. Those all can qualify. But there's subtle ways neighborhoods you move into can promote domination. Uh, states you may live in can promote domination. And you might feel safe in those environments because there's a dominant attitude towards black folks, that black folks are quote unquote in control if they're going to be in your neighborhood, um, that, that you have your personality is celebrated, not tracked as well, not monitored. So when you're not monitored, that really puts a, a domination um, privilege in your personality, depending on where you are. Um, I, I remember very dis distinctly, um, I was in a, a neighborhood teaching a social justice workshop, surprise, in the living room. And I packed myself a dinner, me and my co-facilitator, Portia, my cousin, and we're sitting in the car eating our dinner out in front of the house that we just taught a social justice workshop. And someone saw us and called the police. And the police came and knocked on our window, put the lights in our face and asked us what we were doing. We said we were finished up our dinner. He was pretty aggressive, but kind of like that dominant white police officer aggression, like um, something effective, like, are you done? You know, really, really dominant. It, the question wasn't like, oh, take your time and finish up your dinner. It was like, finish up your dinner and get on out of our neighborhood. But there is a positionality in that neighborhood of if you're a black person eating with the, 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 the lamp light on in your car so people can see your race, that most likely they will call the cops on you. So it was a pretty nice neighborhood. It was in Redlands, California. And I share that story not to bash Redlands. There's thousands of neighborhoods um, that this would happen in. But there's a way that when you live in that neighborhood, there's an assumption that if you're black, it's a high reason, it's a high chance you shouldn't be there. It's a high chance I can just make a phone call and an officer will, will escort you out of the neighborhood, not because you did anything wrong. I had all kind of rights to be there and I'd have to be escorted out or whatever. But I said, yes, sir. Like, I want to out of there. Um, and I say that because this is not a light. This is unfortunate. This is not the, the last time or the first time the cops have been called on me. But there's a way in which domination is in place that um, is surprising. We start to examine this topic and slow it down. How many times we feel as maybe you might feel as a white person that you can just, oh, yeah, I could just call. I could just use my voice and control this entire situation. And that person, based on their ethnicity, based on the economic, based on all that, they're, they're going to be at a disadvantage already. So I say that. Not lightly, but the domination question, I really want you all not to just kick it out of your system right away. Take some time with it. I'll move on to number three here. Number three is, what is your ideal Black person for your family? I know. This is another unfair question. And I think your gut response, we've asked this question to about a couple hundred people now, is you want to kick it out of your system. You're like, oh my God, what kind of racist question is this? This question is really essential. 
what is the ideal black person or we can use African heritage person for your family? This is a really critical question. This is actually a, a sister question to what is your ideal black person? We added families because this is for the family workshop. But I find that if we ask the first, you know, the, the, the sister of this question first and say, um, what is your personal ideal black person? You might be like, I don't have an ideal. I love all black people. I feel you. Appreciate the, 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 the energy here. But in America, we have an ideal black person. And oftentimes you have been conditioned through media, through a variety of, of platforms and environments you may live in that say this kind of black person you have attention for. This particular trauma story of African heritage folks you don't have attention for. And we see this acted out in a thousand different ways. So before you kick the question out, understand, examine. You don't have to. I think this question is best set up. The setup of this question is best set up by what is your so this is white. This can work for black folks, but in this particular podcast and 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 part of this workshop, this is for white folks to hold. What is your ideal black person? Who do you feel safest with? And then you expand it to your family. That might change dramatically. You might feel safer, but then when you add your child and your husband or your wife or your partner, whoever it is, into the family, you get, well, how's your family feel? I, I don't know how many times I have uh, worked mostly with white women where they, they have this large spectrum of black people they can be close to, and then you add their husband to it, and that thing is zeroed down to almost a much more narrow lens. But their partner cannot hold the same thing that their wife is holding, or does it feel safe, or feels threatened, or just because they have a particular trauma story they haven't been tracking. And this is really dangerous, too, for white folks not to be aware of, because you know there's an expansion, a whole topic on this particular question that can be examined, and one of them is, if, if you are not aware of your family's ideal black person and, and you just focus on what you can hold and you invite somebody into your community, you invite someone into your job or whatever power dynamic you may have and they come into your home, it's a possibility things can get really dangerous real fast. Emotionally, physically, or all of the above. Uh, I had a friend in high school who's mixed heritage but white passing invited me to come to their house to a photo shoot. Her husband was racist as chump. Like, uh, scary racist. He was huge. And... She was so excited about this family portrait that I was gifting out to the community back when I did photography, family portraits, that when I came, she didn't even track the fact that she, her husband was not only terrified, but threatened for me to come into his house and do the family portrait. Now, it worked out. And another time, I'd share the whole story of how it went, but it could have went a lot, a lot more dangerous for all of us if, if he didn't calm down towards the end of the photo shoot. But I say that because she did not track the ideal black person for her family. She didn't realize by asking a dark-skinned high school friend of hers to come into her home that her husband would feel so threatened. Because all she was thinking about was how wonderful her relationship was with me and how she trusted me. She didn't track her own husband's trauma story. I don't know how many times this happens with, with daughters and families that you know date a black guy and bring him home. I have no clue that their parents are going to freak out. It happens all the time. So this question I recommend you sit with. You sit with this question, white folks, because I can guarantee you if one white person really sits with this question, this can change the entire reality of their family, uh, their whole experience and take it on race and the journey of how they want to raise their child. Because oftentimes children outpace their parents and what they can hold as far as African heritage folks and, and race and racism. So don't get outpaced by your child. Let's get ahead of the trauma here. 
I'll pause there. There's a whole lot. That's probably a whole podcast series on ideal black person we can do at some point. But for this training program, it's going to just speak to that question of how you can maybe hold that. What is the ideal black person for your family? All right, number four. How do you hear and hold black stories? This is so important. And I, I share this because I've gone to homes that have Black Lives Matters posted in front of their house and they have places where they've gone to marches. They've even given donations and all that's appreciated. But once you go inside into the room, there's there's no actual model inside the home uh, shown to the child. And I understand this is a lot easier said than done, hence why we have this program, this six-week intensive program of, of how to you know, deal with race, talk about race, teach race to your child in a white controlled space. But they don't even notice it. They don't even notice that their child that doesn't even know how to hold black stories, has not had any kind of black time, no black stories that have been curated and kind of put in the propaganda of Hollywood. I'm not saying all Hollywood movies about black folks is bad, but you got to be careful, very careful about how you consume black folks in the Hollywood narrative. But there's no actual authentic holding. So how does your story, how does your family hold the stories, the news stories, the the carnage of, of Black Lives Matter is being put onto the internet right now. How does your family hold that? How does a five-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, how do they hold that? So these are big questions. So. so my uh, my micro is getting a little low here, so we're going to pause the podcast here pretty quick. I'm trying to get in a couple more questions here, though. Um, the other question here is, how do you hold black stories? You got that one. Number five this is the last question of the micro, the micro personality profile, and that is, when do you, when were you introduced to shame in your family, and when do you think your child will be introduced to shame in their minds and bodies? And and that question actually can be written a little differently. Actually, I might modify that now. I'm reading it out loud. Um, is when were you, as a person, when you were growing up, when were you introduced to shame? Um, when you were growing up in your personal family? And then when do you think shame is going to be introduced to your child in their mind and their body? Because this is a building block of trauma that can be released in eight different ways, a thousand different ways, if your child is constantly being introduced to shame. Because when you're talking about dismantling racism in your family, and your social dynamics of growing up in a white controlled space. I don't know how many times shame has interrupted good work white folks are getting ready to do around race. Um, and it starts early. So I would first examine number five is when were you as a child, the parent, examine the parent first. When was the parent or you first introduced to shame in your mind and body? And when do you think shame will be introduced to your child? into their mind and body. What age, what circumstances, where are you most likely going to maybe use shame as a tool either accidentally or indirectly on your child? And how can that manifest over years into how your child may be able to show up for this work of social justice work? So that's our micro personality profile. I hope that you are able to answer it, stay with this podcast and use it as a tool to know how our best thinking on this micro personality profile. And there's a list of questions that you all asked us at the top of the workshop. And once you answer these five questions, actually like six questions, once you answer them, then I would love for you to go back to the questions you asked us. And based on your personality, are you able to say, hmm, one of the questions was, how do I talk to my child about police? Once you have answers to all this information, we can link the gap of, okay, I'm talking to my child about police and I have a lot of shame. I'm going to make sure I disrupt the shame piece. 
And when I talk to my child about police and, and we have an idea of our ideal black person can really have to be informed and say, oh, as a family, we can't hold these kind of black folks really well because as a family, as a parent, I'm, I'm afraid of this kind of black person. And so I, I will oftentimes be likely to be dangerous to a black person that shows up in this kind of positionality or shows up in this kind of trauma story in, in near our family because I'm, I'm afraid of my family. I can understand there's ways that can make sense. Uh, to protect your family, but there's a way which you can really talk about, really articulate things deeper about the questions you are asking once you have filled out these five questions. All right, we'll talk more about this in our last class uh, of the intensive, but I really want to just give this podcast as a little helping tool to help you think the best um, that we can as we take on these big topics. Much love to you all, and I really look forward to seeing you all in the workshop. Peace.